Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 289, Lucy. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. But if you've been an active listener, you know that we don't really stick to that all the time. We talk about Artemis a lot on this podcast and the number of benefits of sustained lunar exploration. Of course, one of which is the science of the moon, science which can uh, help us to understand more about the solar system. The same with other missions we've covered on our podcast, like OSIRIS-REx, returning a sample from a carbonaceous asteroid to give us hints into learning about the formation of life in the universe. These are big questions that add to our understanding of the history of, well, everything. And scientists continue to come up with ideas for how to answer these big questions. One mission that launched in 2021 has an ambitious goal of learning about the formation of the solar system by visiting eight asteroids in 12 years. The mission is called Lucy, and you're not going to believe this. It's not an acronym, uh, but it's named Lucy for a fascinating reason all the same, and we'll get into it in this episode. This year, Lucy visits the first asteroid, and scientists are excited. So to discuss the Lucy mission and the big questions that it can help us to answer ahead of this fascinating milestone, we're bringing on the principal investigator, Hal Levison, from the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado. All right, let's get started. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Hal Levison, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. It's my pleasure. It's it's. I think it's my pleasure. Truly, you are the go-to guy when it comes to Lucy. Been doing uh, talking about Lucy quite a bit since its launch, before its launch. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, how you're going to be? Are you going to be sticking around for quite some time, continuing to talk about Lucy uh, through the mission? Uh yeah. The, it's a 12-year mission, yeah. all told. Uh, the last encounter is in uh, the day after my 74th birthday, March 2nd. <laughs> 2033, and I plan to be here for the whole time. Uh, you know what? You can actually probably do a little bit of both. Have the encounter and a 74th birthday party at the same time. Yeah, I, we probably will. <laughs> very exciting stuff. Well, well, go ahead. I was going to say how I'm very much looking forward to this and, and want to and wanna get to know you, get to know this mission a little bit better. Um, I wonder just sort of what inspired you to to get you to where you are. I mean, I know you've been with Lucy for quite some time, but, um, you know, this this mission, Lucy, what we're going to be talking about is has this very grand ambition of uh, better understanding the beginning of our solar system. And I wonder if perhaps you had some inspiration as as a child or or at some point in your life that that set you on the course to get you where you are today? Um, I took a very odd and circuitous route to this position. Hmm. So if you actually go and look at my scientific record, um, I'm actually a theorist, which makes me very odd for Mission PI. Mm -hmm. um, I study uh, the dynamics of the origin of the solar system, how we get planets like the Earth, how um, the small body populations in particular inform us on the history of the solar system and the formation of the planets. That's sort of been my specialty oh, um, 
uh, throughout my the second, let's say, the second half of my career. And um, I think we, I realized a few years ago that we hit a point where I think we are in a situation where we're idea rich and data poor. When I got into the field of planet formation 20 some odd years ago, right, we were in a situation where I think we were um, idea poor and data rich. In other words, we would look around the solar system and just see things that we just couldn't understand. Right? A famous problem from 20 years ago was why Mars is so small. Right? Hmm. And so using that as an example, when I got in this field, we had no ideas of why Mars is smaller than the Earth. The planet formation theories would have predicted it was bigger than the Earth. And as you know, it's a tenth the mass of the Earth. Uh, now I think we have four or five different ideas of how the Mars could be so small, and yet we, um, you know, can't decide because we don't have enough data, right? And the same thing, my specialty was comets in the outer solar system. A same kind of argument can be made in the outer solar system. When I got into the field, no one under knew, had a good idea of how the Trojans formed, right? Now I think we have some good ideas of how the Trojans got where they are, at least, and we don't know how to distinguish one idea from another. So I decided to go from being a theorist, right, to getting more data that will help us answer some of these fundamental questions. I see. You there was two. You you were fulfilling the need, right? You you wanted to. There were all these questions and that you wanted answers. So you thought you'd hop over to the data side of the house to to go and fulfill those ideas that you had and try to try to keep things moving. That's right. All right. That's exactly. Well, then, how did uh? T- can let's start with Lucy uh right away and start talking about its origins and just sort of what. You know, you said you started as a theorist and made your way this way. Can you talk about just sort of the early concepts, early ideas, early um, early years, really, of of Lucy's concept? Yeah. So um, one of the things. So let me. I'm going to continue from where we were. Our last question. Perfect. Right. One of the things that I'm curious about is the evolution of the outer solar system when we. Th- worry about how planets like the Earth got here. One thing that we've learned over my ta- my career was basically, if you don't mind this pun, right, that planets like the Earth don't form in a vacuum. They <laughs> form as part of a system where materials that they're growing from are being passed around by the growing planets. The growing planets are competing for those resources, right? And so to understand how a planetary system that has an Earth formed, you have to understand the planetary system as a whole. And um, so I focused mainly on the outer planetary system. We realized probably 15, 20 years ago that we have a problem making the giant planets where we see them. And so the giant planets had to move around early in their history, right? I was one of the first modelers to actually sit down and try to understand how that could have happened. Um, and, um, one of the things that came out of these events, moving the planets around, we found was that they formed the Trojans. So if you look at the Trojans from the ground, what you see is although they occupy a very small region of space, they're 
very physical they're physically very different from one another and you can see that in their spectra particularly their colors and you can see objects that are gray and you can see objects that are very red which is indicative of coming from the outer solar system all sort of mixed together and these ideas of how the planets moved around would predict that objects from all over the outer solar system could get mixed together and trapped in the trojans during these events um if that's true, right, then the different physical characteristics of the Trojans give us very important clues about how that mixing and the planet migration process happened. So I realized that as a theorist. And um, but what we didn't really understand is what those colors are telling us about where and when the objects that we see in the Trojans form. So really the idea of Lucy grew out of this idea of trying to understand what the different colors are telling us about the chemistry of these objects so we can link it to where in the protoplanetary disks they formed. And then that will inform us about how the planet migration process occurred. That was sort of my thinking when okay. I started putting together uh, Lucy. When uh, so so you wanted to you had this idea about the Trojans being sort of this 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 um, area unexplored that has this um, capability to, because of where they are in the position of planet formation they have this lovely um, may, maybe the right word here is uh, preservation of the history of the solar system. Yes, right. Yeah, um, yeah. From my interest. The Trojans are special in that way, right? Mm. But really, I think, you know, if you look at the small body populations as a whole, right, they really do represent the, um, you know, we call them the fossils of planet formation, which is how we got the name Lucy, right? right. These are objects that formed and were sculpted as the planets moved, formed and evolved, and they've been relatively pristine since then. So they really are a treasure trove for understanding the history of the solar system. And that's why NASA and the rest of the planetary community has spent so much effort studying these small bodies. Uh, a little bit more on Lucy, just that name. I know it, it, it's it's a wonderful name, and I know uh, I, I addressed this in, in the introduction, but funny enough, we always like to have acronyms, and this is not one of them, but but Lucy in and of itself, being the fossil that that you're referencing, I love the way that it's characterizing, um, you know, the, the, the and comparing this particular fossil that was found on Earth with the idea of, and, and you, you, you stated it perfectly, this fossilization, the the fossils of the um, of the solar system. What exactly was Lucy, and and tying tying more to um, why it's it's such a perfect name for this? Well, Lucy is a well known. Um, think of it as the missing link. Back when I was a kid, right in the seventies, there was really a link in our understanding of the evolution of of humanity. Uh, this is a fossil that lived roughly three million years ago. Boy, you're pushing my knowledge here. This is not my expertise, <laughs> right? That's and right, really represented a missing link between basically the ape-like creatures we were to the humans that we are. Yeah. So one, one interesting fact about the name Lucy is that the fossil was actually named 
after the Beatles song, Loosing the Sky with Diamonds. Mm. And so we have sort of adopted that as our theme song. I don't know if you noticed our patch is shaped like a diamond. Oh, my gosh. And, I totally missed and, that. Yeah. And, you know, we every once in a while we refer to the Trojans as the diamonds in the sky because of what they're going to teach us about the um, history of the solar system. You guys have to play so that song when you're to, when you're passing uh, Dinkinish here up, up soon, right? You they'll play. let us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not on air, so you don't have to worry about the rights. Yes. Yeah. In terms of you know what we're trying to find, why the Trojans are interesting, you started thinking about Lucy, started thinking about concepts, right? You're on the data side of the house now. You're like, okay, I have this theory. How can I go find? How can I go figure out? You know how to visit the Trojans, how to collect data. Is it true? I, one thing I found was the plant. Uh, I think I think it was actually your words in an interview was that the planets aligned for this mission in terms of the the concept and and the opportunity that you had to visit the asteroids. How how did the truly the planets align for this to happen? So one of the keys, and I sort of mentioned this earlier, of the Trojans, uh, in order to try to detangle. Right, the history of the solar system, as I said, is their diversity. Is that they look around and they're very different from one another. Right? And you can imagine um, taking that, if you knew what those colors were telling us about formation, then you can say this many Trojans came from this area in the solar system and this many Trojans came from this area in the solar system, and that helps us constrain the models. Right? Mm -hmm. So the the key, well, I was thinking the key when we were putting this mission together of trying to detangle all this stuff is understanding the diversity. And in order to understand the diversity, we have to visit enough objects that we can figure out what that diversity is telling us. So our goal when we started this is to visit as many of these things as we can. Okay? And that sort of makes sense just from an exploration point of view, because the first thing you want to do when you're exploring a population is do a census and a reconnaissance and figure out the global picture. And then you can choose particularly interesting objects to go and visit and orbit and things like that. That's been the whole history of you know the exploration of space so all that sort of fit together but we needed to visit a lot of objects and um we started off thinking that we could just get two um and started putting together um a a picture or a trajectory that would get us to two one that's very gray and one that's very red and then it all sort of was luck, right, after that. So um, the person, uh, Brian Sutter, who's at Lockheed Martin, a brilliant dude when it comes to this kind of mission planning, was showing us some movies, just going to two of them, which are our first uh, Everbetty's, and then the last in the L4 leading swarm, which is called Oris. And he just let the movie run, run for a while after showing us that trajectory because he's worried about planetary protection right mm -hmm. that we don't hit something 
Right. So he had this long movie, and we're sitting there talking after this, and he had some famous asteroids on his movie, and I noticed that it was flying by. It looked like the spacecraft may have been flying by Patroclus. And I asked him, well, can we go there? And he went and looked and gave early. We could go there, <laughs> right? And and so now we had Everberry's orbit, Oris, and Patroclus. And it turns out that when he looked in detail, we could get to two more. <laughs> um, and, you know, it turns out that that was very lucky. <laughs> we did an experiment well, you know, because you have to propose these things to NASA. And one of the things NASA cares about is timeliness, right? And, you know, why do we do it now? Why can't we wait a decade until our technology is better, for example? Mm -hmm. And so as part of our argument, we did an experiment and asked ourselves, well, what happens if we would launch in like 2030? And we did the same kind of thing we tried to do for the launch date of 2021, and it turns out we could get to three. Hmm. And they weren't anywhere near as interesting because each of those targets I mentioned are interesting targets for a spacecraft in and of themselves. So we have this extremely rich trajectory. And as far as we can tell, it's just luck. Another way to think about it is, uh, you know, I said that I studied planet formation. I'm a dynamicist. I worry about things, how things move around the solar system. That was my science. So I've been sort of, um, I've been sort of worshiping at the feet of the celestial mechanics gods for thirty years, <laughs> and they're paying us back, right? This yeah. is really, if we weren't doing this now, we would not be able to get anything anywhere near as interesting um, in the future. Very, so. very wonderful timing, honestly. And um, yeah. you know, it must have been a really exciting moment. Where after all this hard work of, um, you know, putting your concepts together and realizing like, hey, now's the time, pitching it to NASA, it must have been really rewarding when NASA accepted the proposal. Uh, yeah, I remember <laughs> the, the day of the announcement. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine and I said to him, you know, no matter what happens today, I'm going to say, oh, crap, now what do I do? <laughs> and uh i guess um you know it was kind of in a in a maybe in a good way it was an, a good oh crap because now you really had to kick in the gear and start gathering a team to make this a reality so when after that oh crap moment like wow i really i really have to do this um what yes. what were some of those Although the team was already put together right i see okay when you put the proposal together right nasa you know, it's it's an interesting process you go through okay. because NASA wants to ensure that any team can function under stress. Hmm. Uh, what I like to say is the science wins a mission, but everything else can lose it. Hmm. And so everything about the mission, the teams, the instruments, the schedule, the cost, all was mapped out before we even applied or at least the second level of applications. The way NASA does these big missions is they realize that no one can actually sit back and design a mission concept uh, well enough with the limited amount of money that they have, right, 
to put in the proposal. So they do it in two steps. Mm. One is you put in what's called the step one proposal, which uh, for Lucy was about um, 125 pages, I think. Okay, and it's I know my engineering colleagues would hate it when if they heard me say this, but where you really do what I call Lego engineering. Mm. You take this and stick it there and you take this and stick it there and that kind of thing. Yeah. Without really being able to do an analysis to prove to yourself it's going to work. Then, uh, so there were, I think, 27 proposals put in in step one. NASA down selects, the, in our case, five, in which they gave us some money. And that allowed us to go and develop what we call the concept study report, which is about a thousand page document. And there are all the schedules, all the engineering, preliminary engineering all the management style, you know, org charts and all that stuff was part of that proposal. And then we were selected in, in uh, 2016, uh, 2017. I see. Yeah. So uh, it, it gives it gives NASA, it gives others the confidence that, you know, there's they have a really good understanding of exactly what you guys are going to do. And then after that award is really, and may, you can keep correcting me along the way, after the award is really where... The, you start to cut the hardware. You start to actually put the the spacecraft together. You start to actually build the instruments, test the instruments. It's it's it, that's post proposal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a period where you're refining the engineering. I see. Even after the concept study report, but yeah, you have a preliminary design, and NASA judges you on the preliminary design, and then you uh, go into phase C, is where you really dot the I's and cross the T's, right? And so sort of about a third of the way through that is when you actually start cutting metal. Or at least that's how Lucy worked. And so if you were to sort of give a, you know, verbal description of the of how Lucy looks and, and what what are sort of its defining features when, you know, after refining and, and thinking about how how to best build a spacecraft given its needs, given it what it's going to do. What are some of those key features that make Lucy Lucy? Well, I mean, Lucy sort of looks like Mickey Mouse because <laughs> yeah. it has these two um, large, almost circular solar arrays mm -hmm. uh, on either side. Lucy is going further from the sun than any other solar-powered spacecraft in history. And as a result, we have these massive arrays that are roughly 7.3 meters in diameter, mm. so they're big, right? The spacecraft is roughly 50 feet wingtip to wingtip when the solar arrays are fully deployed. The bus itself is about 14 feet tall. And on top of top, but yeah, you get the idea, right. um, of the spacecraft, we have what we call the instrument pointing platform, which is a gimbaled platform that can point our instruments at our clients. Okay. So you can think of it as a winged, uh, a winged bat type thing with a head. Think of that. That's what Lucy looks like. Yeah. 
And uh, okay, yeah, described it perfectly. And really, what Lucy is, and this, you know, this this bat, this Mickey Mouse figure, what it really is doing is this is the spacecraft that's holding the precious things that you and the science community cares about. Those instruments, and the instruments are giving you the data that you want. That's going to reveal the things that you that you want to reveal about the Trojan asteroids. And so, what are some of those key instruments, and what do they do? And um, you know, how do how does the data from them inform what what you need uh, to make your conclusions about um, uh, the the Trojans? So, getting back to this idea that you want diversity, you need to visit a lot of objects. The way to do that, right, is to move really fast. After all, if, uh, we're orbiting the sun three times, four times, right? Mm -hmm. But when we're out at the Trojan distances, there's basically two orbits around the sun. And so we're moving really fast. So we're not, we can't stop and sniff. We can't touch the asteroids. All these things are uh, remote sensing, basically camera type instruments. But given that we're doing a, about everything we possibly could to study these things as we go by. Uh, the first, which is not a camera actually, is as we fly by, we're gonna be able to measure the gravitational tug of the Trojans on our on the spacecraft hmm. using our high gain antenna. That's going to allow us to measure its mass. Then we have two panchromatic cameras on the spacecraft. Um, one, uh, one is a wide field, um, camera that we call the terminal tracking cameras. It's used mainly to make sure that the instruments are pointed at the targets as we fly by, right? We don't really know where they are um, to within the size of the object. So Lucy, unlike some of the previous spacecrafts like New Horizons that went to Pluto, um, uh, it had to cover a large what we call error ellipse. And a lot of the data that New Horizons took was of empty sky because they didn't know where Pluto was, hmm. right? Lucy has a camera system and software that in ensures that the cameras are always pointing at the targets. And that's done by these terminal tracking cameras. Um, they're wide field panchromatic cameras, but they're also... Uh, designed in such a way that we're going to be able to get the shape of our Trojans, all right, by using these wide field images. Then we have a basically a 10-inch telescope on on Lucy that's panchromatic. It's uh, a high resolution um, uh, camera. This is going to allow us to uh, observe basically the geology and count craters. Uh, we expect that we're going to get down to something like 14-meter resolution with that camera. Wow. We won't be able to cover the whole target with that. But one of the goals, uh, scientific goals of Lucy, is to measure the crater size distribution on the targets. Mm -hmm. So the crater size distribution tells us the size distribution of the stuff that's hitting um, the, the targets. And that's interesting from a, the point of view of planet formation, right? Because, right, if you think about it, planet formation is has two processes in it. 
One is collisional processes where things hit and either grow or break. And the other dynamical process, which allow these things to move around so that they can hit each other and grow or break. So one of the diagnostics to understand how planets form is in any small body population, what the size distribution of the objects are, because that is driven by the collisional process. Now we know what, how many big Trojans there are because we can see it from the telescope with our telescopes. But in order to really understand how collisions evolve that population, we have to understand what the small Trojans look like. We can't see those from the ground or even from Lucy, but we can measure their sizes by looking at the craters on the bigger objects. So one of our primary goals is to understand and measure that size distribution. Another instrument we have on board, it's actually two instruments. One we call LaRalph. Um, it, it has uh, two parts. One is a color camera, and the other is a near-infrared spectrograph um, intended to measure the composition. Uh, one of the interesting things, as I said, that uh, some objects are gray, some objects are red, but we don't know why. So the idea of doing this near-infrared spectroscopy is going to tell us about the composition of the surfaces and hopefully allow us to determine where in the solar system, or at least estimate where in the solar system each individual object formed. Then we have a thermal infrared spectrograph on, on board. Um, that's going to allow us to measure things like the thermal inertia, how uh, quickly the, um, the surfaces cool off or heat up when they move in and out of the sun. And what that's going to tell us about is the physical characteristics, how fluffy uh, the surface is of these objects. So that's the instrument suite. Wonderful. And, and when you put all of them together, when you have all these pieces of data, the fluffiness, when you have, you know, the, the certain imagers, when, when you have all of these that tell you different, I, I guess, stories about the asteroid, how do you, how do you compile all of these data and, and turn it into a concise, you know, here's what we're looking at. Why are the craters important? Why is the thermal um, spectroscopy important or the thermal inertia important? You know, when you, when you add everything together, how do these data come and tell you a story? Well, the, the, the craters tell us the collisional history, mm -hmm. right? Also, the shapes tell us the collisional history. There's certain aspects of the shapes of our targets which are really interesting. And we've been able to measure those from the ground. I think they're telling us that they're primordial objects, uh, which are, or at least some of them are, which is really very interesting, right? The chemistry will tell us something about where in the solar system these objects form, their temperatures at the time of formation, that kind of thing. The surface characteristics, again, will tell us something about uh, the collisional evolution, or maybe about um, the sizes of objects that these things form from, right? And how they came together um, to form the more the larger objects that we see, right? And I can't predict 
how we're going to combine all that information because it depends on what they say. Mm, yep. But all those things put together are going to be used to make to constrain right these models of how the planets formed in the world. And all of these, how I would I would guess, are are very precious in a, in a way. And so the way that the system is designed, you have these capabilities on board to give you a certain level. I could even say a, a significant level of confidence that when you're passing an asteroid, that you are pointing those precious instruments in the right direction to get the data that you need. Um, but you mentioned that it's going fast. And so when when Lucy is traveling and passing one of these eight asteroids, what does that look like in terms of the way that the um, spacecraft moves and really just how much time you have to gather these data? Yeah, don't blink is the answer to that question. <laughs> so, so um, you know, as I said earlier, this is a 12-year mission. Um, the encounters are between about six and nine kilometers a second. So our objects, at least the smaller ones, are only going to be resolvable from the spacecraft for a couple hours. Okay. Okay, the bigger one's a little bit further. So, um, you know, we're very careful about designing, um, you know, uh, designing a science sequence. It's all automated, right? We can't point and shoot. We can't say, oh, look at that, and um, and tell the spacecraft to look here versus there. None of that is possible. Matter of fact, the spacecraft, because of the conops, is not even going to be talking to the Earth while uh, these, these encounters happen, because they, the spacecraft itself actually flops over as we fly by. Hmm. So... Um, now, I want to put this in perspective, right? This is a 12-year mission, and almost all the important science is going to happen maybe in 20 or 24 hours. Oh, I um, see. Right? And the rest of the time is just getting between our targets. <laughs> so another thing the spacecraft is not going to be able to do during the encounters is send, back, send us back any data. So uh, again, this is pretty typical for flybys. The, the the spacecraft is going to be totally autonomous. We're going to program it to do what we're told to do, and then after it's done, it's going to rotate back, uh, put its high gain antenna back on the Earth, and then beam back the data afterwards. Hmm. Okay. So uh, is yeah. That enough, is that enough information? It, it's 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 more than enough. Yes, that's exactly what I was looking for. Is you only have okay. you only have a couple of hours with um you know at at most with some of these uh, with some of these uh, asteroids. But it sounds like you know the way that the mission is designed, um you know you, you th what you're trying to do is capture as much of it as possible. Can't point the antenna because the the instruments are the most important part of pointing the right direction at the time of the encounter. You know, you can, and and there's so much time in between encounters, you can wait. You don't need to have real-time ops. They're automatic anyway. So you're just sort of relying on the spacecraft and its design um, to, to give you what you need. That's right. Yeah. And so when it comes from an operations perspective, you know, it's not, uh, uh, we, we um, you know, this podcast mostly talks about 
um, human spaceflight, and human spaceflight very much is 24-7 operations. When humans are in space, we're looking at things all the time. And so I wonder what Lucy operations look like um, in terms of monitoring the spacecraft and making sure that it's um, performing. Um, are you getting, you know, regular data? Or is it is it incremental? Are there commands and... and um, are, and and uh, anything being issued to the spacecraft, or is anything everything passive? Everything's coming from the spacecraft. What do those operations look like over a twelve-year period? Well, I mean, the, you know, we're monitoring the spacecraft. We're talking about it, talking to it all the time. I see. Um, we have they're called uh, DSM passages. We have a couple a week mm -hmm. if we're not doing anything for monitoring that kind of thing. Uh, uh, operations, right? Um, one thing about Lucy is um, that, you know, our launch day was not perfect. It was beautiful, by the way, if your audience should look online on some of the Lucy la launch videos. Even people who uh, live down there uh, told me that it's one of the most beautiful launches ever. Wow. It was at, uh, dur just during the beginning of Twilight, um, uh, launching at uh, 5.34 in the morning, so it was dark, and there was a cloud bank that the rocket went into and then erupted from the top of that was spectacular. Fortunately, I didn't see it. I was too close, so I was under the cloud bank. <laughs> so for me, the rocket just disappeared into the clouds. But for those people who were a little further away, it was really a beautiful thing. So people should look it up if they have um, a chance. But um, about an hour after launch, uh, the spacecraft um, was separated from the launch vehicle, and we started um, deploying these sol solar arrays, and one of the solar arrays did not completely de de deploy. Mm-hmm. So as of now, these things actually unfold sort of like Oriental fans. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, complete deployment is 360 degrees uh, after a lot of work um, uh, over the last year and a half. We are now, I think we're about 355 degrees deployed. That changes the dynamical characteristics of the spacecraft. So we've been quite busy actually trying to characterize that and redesign uh, things like our control systems to make sure that they, we can, they're stable as we do these activities. So there's a lot of work that's been going on hmm. because of that. The spacecraft, we're pretty sure, is safe, and we're going to be able to do our work, but it's been a lot of work. So... Um, in normal just cruise, right, we have, um, you know, uh, uh, what we call the Mission Operations Center, which is down at Lockheed Martins in South Denver. This is all Colorado uh, mission, by the way, right? The launch vehicle, the science team, Lockheed Martin built the spacecraft. Almost all of it was done in Colorado. Cool. Um, but uh, so they are... Uh, you know, monitoring the spacecraft, testing its systems. We're doing a lot of calibrations. So we take pictures of stars and that kind of thing um, on a fairly regular basis as we prepare for these encounters. 
Um, the science team is extremely active now, right? I said it's a 12-year mission, but um, the the targets are not uniform, uniformly spread in time because the Trojans uh, sit in two clumps, one that leads Jupiter by 60 degrees and one that follows Jupiter by 60 degrees. It takes two orbits around the sun to get both swarms. So starting um, in 2027, right, we're going to enter what we call the leading swarm or the L4 swarm, and we're going to have four encounters in 15 months. Ooh. The first two are only 30 days apart. And so um, all this needs to be planned before we get there. So the science team, even as we speak, are planning what the spacecraft is going to do when it gets to these targets. And so everybody's busy all the time. It mu- yeah, it must be that way. And especially now, um, I'm thinking about the, the, the nearest term encounter. I'm thinking about um, Dinkinesh, the one that's uh, coming up later this year. And so preparing for, for that encounter, your first encounter, um, what does that timeline look like in terms of you guys are busy, you guys are checking out the spacecraft, you want to make sure everything is good, um, and then, you know, what, what, what that operation looks like for the first pass coming up later this year? Yeah, let me point out, right, that we added Dinkinesh only a few weeks ago. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is a good point. That's right. And so, you know, we had a schedule to prepare for our first encounter, which was which is a, a encounter with a main belt asteroid called Donald Trahanson, right? But that's still a while away. 2025, uh, right? By, yeah, 2025. Um, by the way, we named Donald that asteroid after the uh, discoverer of the Lucy fossil. Right? Most of our targets were not named before we uh, decided they were targets. So we have gotten the name. Then. Oh, and cool. indeed, Dinkinesh is the Ethiopian name for the Lucy fossil, which oh. is how we came up with that. Very cool. So uh, it was only, so, you know, way back when we were planning this, we had a schedule um, for what we would be doing, right, until we got to Donald Johansson. This includes two Earth gravity assists, one that happened last October. Mm-hmm. And again, your audience should, go off and look at some of the beautiful pictures of the moon in particular that we took. Um, right. That was to, uh, you know, one of our goals is to get as small as um, craters as we can and smallest geometry, uh, geology that we can on our targets. And we wanted to exercise the cameras to make sure we understood um, their behavior. So uh, we had, that was, a lot of work in and of itself, but we've added the fact that we need to understand how the spacecraft will fly given the solar array is unlatched and as an extra test because we wanted to see and understand the characteristics of the spacecraft now, right? We've added this target called Dinkinich, which is a small, um, it's about 700 meter, just main belt asteroid that's in the inner part of the asteroid belt. So scientifically, it's not very very important, but as a test of our systems, it's very important. By the way, it's so small, we call it Dinky. Short for Dinky. <laughs> okay, that's 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 good to um, 
that's good to clarify, right? That this this came up quick, that your timeline for actually making a pass moved up. Um, but, you know, maybe you could can get a little bit of science um, from it, but understanding the operations of what a pass is going to look like and having that sort of first go before you hit some of your more scientifically interesting targets um, is probably of, of great value to the Lucy team. Absolutely. That's how we justified doing this. Very cool. I mean, it's not a particularly interesting scientific. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, you're going to be doing this pass here coming up soon. And then um, it's, it's a while in between each of these, um, each of these passes, like, like we've mentioned many times, it's a 12 year mission. Um, so, so there's a lot, it's a, it's, it's definitely a marathon when it comes to supporting this. And like you said, you know, there's troubleshooting along the way. Teams are very busy. Do you have uh, teams fully dedicated to Lucy or are do they wear several hats where, you know, they have to, they, they work on Lucy, but then, you know, they're also working on other projects? Well, most of the people I think, I must admit, I would have to look at that information, right? That's fair. Most of the people um, that work on Lucy are part-time, right? Mm. But we have a core group of people. Uh, particularly, you know, probably something like 10 or so down at Lockheed full-time. The management team here at Southwest is full-time. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the key science people are, are roughly full-time, uh, that kind of thing. But then there are a lot of people like the science team who, uh, you know, have multiple hats and going around doing different things. And come together at critical times in order for us to um, uh, design the sequences, for example. And what about you? Are you full time, Lucy? Are are you you're gonna stick through to the end? And and this is your and this is your primary focus. Uh, it's my only focus. There you go. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> so and then, it is a full time and it is a full time job. <laughs> And uh, that's 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 important to note. It's a full-time job to make sure that this flight is going to be successful over 12 years. But I think it's also that it's not just, um, you know, it's it's 12 years of really data gathering. And I wonder what the analysis and the scientific um, aspect comes in with some of these passes. You know, are you doing it incrementally in between some of the passes, looking at some of the data, parsing it through? Um, and then how, how far do you expect that to continue after the last pass in 2033? Oh, it takes a matter of weeks to get all the data down. So, mm. um, you know, we'll do a, we'll, you know, we'll do an encounter and we'll, we'll send the data down after each one. The only exception to that may be the first two Trojan encounters. Everybody's with the satellite Keta and um, and Palomelli, which is with its satellite Tron. They're only thirty-four days apart. And so we'll get some of the key data down from the first encounter before we do the second. But um, most of the data from both will come down after the second encounter. I see. Yeah, because again, the primary focus there is the operations. You you can't be, yeah, you need to make sure that instruments are ready to go and checked out for that next pass. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, so how, or what I wanted to do was sort of end with, uh, and just kind of looking at Lucy as a whole and this sort of, and this sort of mission, this opportunity to go visit the Trojans. Um, 
You, you, we started off the conversation about you talking about your time as a theorist and coming up with ideas, and now you've spent a significant amount of time and already indicated that you're going to spend your your primary and only focus is going to be seeing this mission through to the end. Um, just, I want to I want to gauge your your excitement and your passion for sticking with a project for this long, right? I mean, this is uh this is obviously something that's very meaningful to you and to the scientific community, and and you want to see this through to the end. And I wonder what your thoughts are about just the mission, everything that led to this moment. You know, all of the different concepts, the planets aligning, the design, the launch, the issues that were encountered, and and we're pushing through in order to make the science a reality. Taking all of that, all of that that we talked about today. And, and putting it into perspective of what we're trying to do and what we're trying to learn here, what what sort of drives you every day that you come into the office? Well, first of all, let me just say, you know, it's it's awesome in the classical sense of the word. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you think about what we're doing, I, I was just talking to my daughters. I have two daughters; they're adults at this point. And you know, and I was saying, yeah, Lucy just passed the orbit of Mars. I mean, think of that, mm-hmm. right? You know, I mean, we really are reaching out to, you know, when I was a kid, I was a kid basically predated Pioneer, right? Pioneer happened when I was in high school, right? Viking happened again when I was in high school. And so, you know, we're, we're turning, we're turning these distant astronomical objects right, in the sense that they're just lights in the sky to something that, to real worlds and trying to figure out where we came from, from that information. It's it's truly awesome. In the classical sense of the word, Hal Levison. In the classical sense of the word. Hal Levison, thank you so much. It was such an um, extreme pleasure for me to get to talk to you today and sort of feed off of that passion because what this is is, is just super exciting. And I hope our listeners are, are engaged and and uh, and ready for that first pass and kind of um, uh, learning, uh, kind of tuning in along the way on, on all the milestones that you and your team are putting together. So I appreciate you coming on to to talk about Lucy today, and and um, and we're we're excited here on the podcast for sure, and we'll be following along uh, throughout the mission. I, I, it's my pleasure. Right, I really love Lucy, and uh, so I'm happy to share with you. Awesome, thanks, Hal. Take care. Bye bye. Hey, thanks for sticking around. It was awesome to get to feed off of the incredible energy of Hal Levison today. I hope you learned something and are as excited about Lucy as we are. Uh, you can check out NASA.gov for the latest and the updates that come out from Lucy. And then, of course, if you want to listen to us and more podcasts, we have a number of them that you can find on NASA.gov slash podcast. There you can find us and listen to any of our episodes in no particular order. If you do want to talk to us, we are also on social media, and you can go to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages and use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea or maybe ask a question. Just make sure to mention it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on April 21st, 2023.
Thanks to Will Flato, Pat Ryan, Heidi Lavelle, Belinda Polito, and Jane Jennings. And of course, thanks again to Hal Levison for taking the time to come on our show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.